Hello, everyone. You are listening to the DMZ America podcast with Ted Rall and Scott Stantis. Coming to you from the left, I am Ted Rall. And I'm Scott Stantis. It's Friday, October 15th. And wow. <laughs> wow, coming what? to you from the right, man. Coming <laughs> to you from the right. Mass resignations. I quit. You know what? I don't like this. I quit, Ted. (laughs) Well, apparently you would be one of 4 million people who quit in the last month. Uh, According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, four and a half million Americans decided to uh, tell their bosses to take this job and shove it. Uh, Many of them ended up taking new jobs, but some of them dropped out of the workforce entirely. And Paul Krugman has a piece in today's New York Times where he's uh, he's, of course, the Nobel Prize uh, winning Princeton economist. And uh, full disclosure, I know him a little bit. I once parked his car. <laughs> I, uh, it's you a funny story, actually. Yeah, no, it's true. I was uh, walking by a, a bookstore uh, where he was having a book signing, just happenstance, in the, called the Strand. It's uh, argue well, certainly the biggest bookstore in New York, and it's uh, one of the best. And he was walking by, and uh, he this guy pulls up on a you know driving a a jeep covered with blood on the front, which is not the kind of thing you normally see. And Lord. this very panicked man gets, comes out who I immediately recognize as uh, Dr. Krugman. And I, I was like, uh, Paul, how are you? And he's like, I hit a deer. I'm late for a signing. Where do I park? And he, I'm like, I can park your car. And he threw me with the keys and I went and found parking. And then, uh, you know, he went upstairs to his book signing. And then I walked up there and he had like, maybe 150 people there. And I threw the keys to him. And I said, you're over on 4th Avenue and 11th Street. And he was like, thanks. He goes, that's Ted Rall, the cartoonist. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so yeah, that, that's my Paul Krugman story for today. Um, but he speculates, uh, he's only, and I think it's interesting that even he can only really speculate why this is happening now. I mean, and, and the reason, Scott, that I, what I'm really interested in here, and I think, because I, I, I don't have a clue. I mean, look, people are saying like they're fed up with their jobs because they've been overworked, underpaid, un- unappreciated, yeah. not yeah. enjoying the work. Okay, stipulated okay but that's been going on since work was invented nothing's new here so what is giving people the freedom psychologically or financially or both to finally say okay i'm not i don't have to put up with this anymore what is it about this moment that's allowing people to do that the only thing i can do i'm not going i'm sure dr krugman has uh you know numbers and you know facts, but I'm going to, I'm going to take a wild leap here and assume that firstly, we've gone through a year of people not having jobs or, or having, you know, gig economy jobs or just not having jobs because of the pandemic. So they, you know, I, I think they get used to that. And then they start to think, wait a minute, my boss is a tool. (laughs) He or she treats me like crap. I hate this. I hate them. I don't want to go back to you know, the Duke of Burgers and make minimum wage and make make a tip wage. And I I don't you know what? Yeah, but still, you have to be able. And the thing is, most I mean, you know, you've heard the famous statistic that the over 50 percent of Americans do not have the ability to absorb an emergency four hundred dollar expense effectively. And I remember years ago, and I don't know if this is still true. Effectively, most Americans have no savings at all. The average savings account when I last checked this had less than one dollar. In, in balance. So basically, there are no savings in this country uh, for most people. 
So if you quit your job, you still have expenses. You still have to pay the rent. You still have to pay for your car. <clears throat> so what, you know, I mean, it's like, it's one thing to be like, okay, I just can't stand this anymore. But it's another thing to say, I'm actually going to take my income down to zero and walk. I mean, you can do that if you have a new job waiting for you, obviously. But if you drop out of the workforce, I mean, you know, I mean, look, I know you conservatives are complaining about the money that uh, Biden uh, and the COVID-19 recovery package put into people's pockets. In many cases, people reported being paid more uh, for not working right. than they were for working. And that I'm, I'm thinking maybe that's part of it. I mean, uh, but also... I think that's part of it. And they got used to it, but they have to know that that's, that money was finite, that that has run out. I know in many states, including Alabama, where I live, it stopped. It stopped in December. So it does, even that doesn't explain the, 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 great, the great resignation. I think it really comes down to, Ted, that people had the moment to say, hey, wait a minute. You know, I, capitalism is, is a wonderful, in my perspective, capitalism is a wonderful tool. However, it can also be abusive. And I'm tired of being abused. I mean, look at, look at the <laughs> numbers. It can be abusive. It's based on abuse. It's the, fund, it's the foundation of the system is the idea that you have to, I, have, I get to exploit your labor because you have no choice. So I'm going to put you in a position where you are effectively a wage slave. I'm going to make you suffer and I'm going to, and you, you're going to know that if you don't do what I say, if you don't come back from lunch on time, you're going to end up on the street dead. I mean, that's abusive. Wow. Dead? Well, you know, you can, yeah. If you starve to death, if you don't have income, okay, I was how do you say eat? if food costs money, right? I mean, I, I love, I love that it's unless you're like that whole, like, you know, like on Thanksgiving where they have the free meals for the homeless, you have free meals for the homeless. I'm like, what are they supposed to eat the other 364 days a year? Leftover turkey. <laughs> Not tasting so good by October. Not so much. Uh, it's, uh, listen, I mean, I, I, so much to unpack there uh, that I, I happen to think capitalism is a brutal, awful, vicious, undisciplined thing. And it's beautiful and it's, and it's messiness. Yeah, but regardless of that, mm. one of the reasons government exists is to, you know, regulate the ugliness and keep that to a minimum. I believe that we're at a point right now. Well, I mean, look at the number of strikes that are now popping up around the country. Yeah, that's that's new for us, right? I mean, like it's certainly um, new for my for for our generation. Yeah, it, it is new because I mean, I think the last time we really saw widespread strikes, like the Teamsters, uh, the coal miners, and so on, uh, you know, the UAW was really in the seventies, and yeah, uh, perhaps at the very beginning. And Reagan came in in nineteen eighty one. And crash and cra uh, and just crushed the air traffic controllers union, Patco, um, and that sent a really chilling message uh, to unions. Uh, and I think, what I, I think like they it, never really recovered from that. Again, in any market, what happened was it reached critical mass. The unions had reached what membership? In the I think it was what fifty percent or more. No, 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 they never got up that high. I think they oh, got up to like thirty-ish percent. With the abuses of unions at that time, though, I mean, you had the steel industry, which was, again, in crisis because of uh, steel imports from Japan, with a very inexpensive steel that they were dumping into our market. But the steel industry and the you know, steel workers and steel workers union, most specifically of all, actually would go on strike or make demands in 19, 
I believe 1981, the average steel worker in the United States started at $36 an hour. Now, you know, you can argue the legitimacy of paying someone that much even back then, but that was, it obviously raised the cost of steel, raised the cost of the commodity, the commodity as it was competing in the free market against Japanese steel. Well, it killed the steel industry. So this, so the, the, the steel workers union literally killed its own jobs. I mean, it, it, and that's what Americans were looking at at that point. That like anything that grows big and massive and unwieldy and has unwieldy unchecked power, it tends to you know consume itself, and that's what happened with the unions. It's too I would bad. take Listen. issue with you with your with your history of the uh, of the of the unions, though. I mean, of the steel industry, because okay, don't, go ahead. Don't forget Japanese uh, dumping, and uh, you know. So I mentioned that I said that several times. But, oh, but still, I mean, the globalization thing. You know where it came from? Came from you know that was that was Republican policy that was. Uh, in you know trying to it, they deliberately opened U.S. markets um, and failed to impose punitive sanctions or um, or, or uh, what's the word I'm looking for you know uh, tariffs on uh, on Japanese imports and it was a policy you know to deliberately deindustrialize and carve out the heartland in order to deindustrialize to deunionize and and hurt the Democrats I mean that's sort of that was a political act. It was a political act, but Ted, if I'm remembering correctly, and I know that I am, NAFTA <laughs> was pushed was pushed by a Democratic president and pushed through a Bill the Democratic legislature. So that's true. Uh, free markets. Here's the advantage. And here's well, no, actually, we- I guess it was like a wait. So it went through in 1994. So wasn't that under the Newt Gingrich, uh, Bill Clinton sort of co-presidency period? I thought that's when. Uh, well, okay, that could have been when. Yeah, the, the contract with America was. Uh, it took the Republicans to take control of the House. But Bill Clinton certainly signed that law. Well, he pushed it. And, and, it, and, it, and cost Hillary, it cost Hillary Clinton the presidency, I think. You think it so? certainly cost her Ohio. It certainly it certainly cost her Ohio. And I think Michigan. But here's I mean, here's the flip side of that coin, of the, of the capitalist coin. You see what I did there? <laughs> <laughs> and that is that with cheap steel, if you're building a skyscraper in New York and you can pay, you can build it for 10 million versus 15 million, which one are you going to go for? I mean, it, it actually it actually created more jobs in places where they were using massive amounts of the steel. So dumping cheap steel into the market actually helped. It's the same argument with Walmart. That's a really that is super interesting. Yeah, I never thought about it that way. Same I like argument that. with with Walmart. I mean, we you know uh, when they <laughs> do you remember? I mean, God, now I'm going to sound like the old man I am, Ted. But remember that Walmart used to have an ad campaign: "Made in America." We proudly carry stuff made in America. We made in America. Oh wait, they make it cheaper. Screw America. <laughs> we're, we're made in China, and so. But the advantage of that or the was Mariana I can go Silence. to Walmart. I can go to Walmart and buy a bucket for three bucks instead of eight. So I mean, right. who who gets who gets the consumer in that in that equation turns out better. The worker in America in America gets screwed. Well, you know, it's a really interesting thing. That is that is what it always boils down to, right? Is the question of, and I, I mean, this this conversation's obviously veered off track from the Great Resignation, but I think we we you know it's worth <laughs> it is worth talking about because the benefit of trade is to the consumer, right? So if you are uh, a consumer. So the thing is, if you're a person who spends less than you earn, you're still better off uh, living in a high wage, high consumer cost environment. But if you're a person who uh, who is in debt and spends more than they earn, you're better off in a high, in a low consu- in a low wage, low consumer, uh, low consumer cost 
uh, kind of environment. So this is kind of a part in, you know, free trade and globalization have been unwittingly contributing to, you know, our culture of massive indebtedness, consumer debt, uh, you know, discouraging uh, savings. And, uh, and and I think that's been adding to the whole, you know, the, the mass debt mentality, including, you know, uh, wild spending in Congress by both parties. Let me ask you this, Ted. I, I, I really do want to hear your opinion on this. Um, when it comes to like the, let's get back to the math, the great resignation. A lot of the jobs are service jobs, particularly in the food industry. Yeah, disproportionately uh, hospitality jobs, uh, hotels right. and restaurants have been have have lost a lot of employees. Is this going to over time? You know, not nothing's immediate, but over time, and by over time, I mean in the next say two to three years, mm. substantially change the construct of that market of that of that of that labor market. By that I mean, instead of this ridiculous. <laughs> spider web of wages that we have for the service industry, especially the tip wage, which is absurd. Or sub-minimum wage, which makes no sense. No. You can't have sub, no, you can't be sub-minimum. <laughs> I mean, I've, right? I've met some people I would describe that. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and so have you. <laughs> oh, I, that's true. Many of our colleagues. No, just kidding. But are we going to see a substantial restructuring of that of that business and maybe go more towards and this is will maybe surprise you, but I, I think that the European model uh, makes the most sense don't have tipping people are paid X amount of dollars you're 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 a waiter, you know at at our Applebee's your wage is X. I mean, that's just how it is. The waiters I know and have known uh, definitely have always hated the current model as it exists. And, you know, I've read a lot and heard a lot, um, just sort of here in New York, uh, that, that more restaurants are moving toward that model where the, the tips are pooled. So that's like sort of an interim thing. So, you know, the indiv an individual waiter's performance doesn't really, uh, you know, they're not going to, they're not going to earn less than someone who gets better tips or whatever. Um, and there is a, there are some restaurants on the high end that literally don't have tipping now in New York. Um, I think, I think tips, yeah, I think the tipping regime, although still the norm, it's not quite on the ropes, but it's being challenged. I mean, people definitely uh, are, are not into, they're not into it. And I think uh, it is going to change things. And I think the other question is what's going to happen in the hospitality industry, which, you know, I mean, hotels, you know, I mean, it, they all got closed during COVID. And like, the if you know that you can lose your job any second, why would you go into that into that profession? Well, it's not just that. It's also, I mean, you and I have talked about this many times, obviously not on the podcast, but what makes people, what motivates workers is not pay, although pay is nice, money's good. You know, I pay my rent with money. Uh, but but more to the point is actual a sense of appreciation and that your your job has worth. And what these people had for years, I mean, this is, and this is a shortcoming of, uh, of capitalism, is the fact that they can say, well, if you don't like this job, you can just leave and get another one. Well, they're finding that that's true. <laughs> yeah, that is true. I mean, it's true until it's not. I mean, you know, I mean, look, before yeah. we like leave this, seg this, uh, this topic, I have to say, uh, I think it's, an, it's annoying as hell to listen to uh, employers bitch and moan about how they, you know, they can't get any employee, any new employees, um, because they can't find anyone for their jobs. 
And it's like, then, uh, then you look into how much they're paying and they're offering $12 an hour or whatever. It's like, look, pay more money. This is supply and demand. Right now there's a yeah. labor shortage. You got to pay more. And if, and if you can't afford to pay more, that means your business model doesn't work and you can, and you should go out of business. Uh, you know, when it's the other way around and there's a job shortage, high unemployment, you know, you don't hear, you hear the same thing go out to workers. It's like, well, you're just going to have to take less pay because, you know, there's just aren't many jobs. You should be, you're lucky to have a job. How come it doesn't work the other way around? No, I couldn't agree more. And in this case, you and I are going to totally agree that, um, you know, take this job, <laughs> I don't want to take this job and, and shove it. And they finally have stepped, the people are finally able to take a step back and say, no, 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 you dear sir, you shove it. <laughs> and I think that's what this comes down to. Uh, the, the, the abuse of, of capitalism, the abuse of the workers, uh, and they're finally saying enough is enough. And I think that's why it reached critical mass now versus two years ago or two years in the future. It's, the, I, it's, it's, it's having a year and a half to sit around and think about your priorities. Yeah. And, that and, I, also, I want, and also having the, the savings from those Biden bucks. Oh, and I guess they were Trump bucks originally, right? Um, to, to sit there and, uh, and, and rely on that. You know, I mean, money gives you freedom and people have okay. some savings and they have a little bit of freedom now. And I don't know why Biden bucks makes me giggle, but it really does. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, ooh, love those Biden bucks. All right. So uh, we're going to, uh, what are we talking about next? I, uh... Next, we're going to talk about Katie Cork, America's sweetheart. Okay. Not all right. so well, much. Not right. so much. <laughs> well, maybe she never really was. Okay. All right. Oh. So, all right. In a second, we'll be back with uh, Katie Couric and her revelations about RBG. Thank you for coming back and joining us for this next segment. We're talking about America's sweetheart. Remember her? She was the host of the Today Show, Katie Couric. Well, Katie Couric has come out with a 500-page biography. 500. I'm not making that number up, folks. It's 500 pages of biography of talking about her career. But one of, there's a lot of celebrity BS that we don't care about. But one point that she brought up, really, we care about a lot. And that's in an interview with uh, Ruth, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the former associate justice on the Supreme Court. The, who, the is justice, now just, who is now dead. Who has since passed away and has been replaced by, you know, uh, a person of Trump's choosing. <laughs> but uh, RBG has, uh, she, were, during the course of the interview, she said that kneeling during the national anthem was disrespectful to their fathers and grandfathers who fought for their freedoms. Uh, Katie Cork and the staff there at the Today Show on NBC decided that, that wasn't worthy of the interview and they cut it. And we just learned about it now. And does, I mean, why is this a big deal? Why do we care? Well, here's why I care. And here's why Ted cares. And here's why you should care. Because the distrust for the institutions in our country, everything from, from, the, from voting and, and the institution of voting to the institution of media. And we're going to be talking about what's happening in media a little later in the show. But Katie Cork, this just adds yet another layer of quantified and qualified distrust for the mainstream media that the right wing has been pushing. It's a narrative that they've been pushing for years. And frankly, I've been reading about this since I started in, in, in commentary in, in the late 70s, uh, that they ignore and they push aside 
stories like this because it, it kind of flies in the face of the, the, the dominant uh, narrative that they want to push. And so, Ted, I mean, how, how, I mean, I, this isn't fatal. I mean, nobody, you know, is, <laughs> no one's going to look at, well, hell, Katie Couric does this. I'm not watching TV anymore. But this is one, another incident of, uh, instance of, of just the mainstream media being really bad and at their jobs. And so, I mean, I mean, I mean, again, is this just the right wing going nuts about a little thing? Is this a systemic problem, which I think you can point to and say that it is? Um, help me here, Ted, help me. Well, Scott, I'm uh, happy to help you here. Um, you know, it's true that the Americans' distrust of the media uh, is uh, it has sort of been steadily uh, kind of pathetic. Um, I was looking that up. Uh, according to one of the more recent polls, uh, only about 50% of Americans, and this has been pretty steady for the last few years, uh, believe that the top uh, major media outlets like uh, the, you know CNN, Fox News, uh, MSNBC, New York Times, Washington Post, and so on are credible. Uh, the Republicans' uh, rate of, of believing, of trusting the media is much lower than Democrats. Only 36% of Republicans trust the media. 66%, I'm surprised it's that high. 66% really of Democrats, yeah. Um, apparently, Fox News uh, got kind of clobbered uh, over the COVID year. Uh, in, uh, they lost eight points specifically. And I've always said, Scott, and I, we've, you and I have talked about this, that censorship in the media and spin and propaganda are really much more about sins of omission than lies of commission. It's not really that often that the media will just say something that is outright not true, although they certainly do say things that are not true, like, you know, you know like Afghanistan is where 9-11 was planned. Uh, no, it was planned in Pakistan, uh, according to, you know, the 9-11 commission report. Um, and, and we know exactly by whom and at, at whose house. It was Khalid Sheikh Mohammed's house in Karachi. But the, but, you know, so, but normally it's about what they leave out, what they don't say. And the RBG story is like that. You know, I mean, to me, the question as a, an editor or a producer, and what they should ask is, is this, uh, is what, uh, is this news worthy? Is it something that people should know? And is it, something that people would be interested in knowing. And if it passes any of those tests, it should probably go on the air or be printed. And certainly Not I think it's, it would, it would be, it would have come as a surprise to the average uh, reader to, or viewer uh, to learn that Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was, you know, a liberal lioness on the court, uh, was so conservative, a small C conservative, when it came to Colin Kaepernick's refusal to stand for the Pledge of Allegiance, I mean, sorry, for the National Anthem. Uh, and, you know, it was, I, I, it might have just been a curiosity, but it, you know, I think it would have caused a lot of people to wonder if maybe she harbored racist sentiment, or whether she maybe just, uh, you know, she was just a nationalist, or whatever, or you know, maybe it's just whatever. She said, "People, human beings are complicated, and it's and you can be a liberal Democrat and also be a fervent patriot." You know, any of those of things. But we didn't get to have that conversation as a people because uh, you know Katie Couric and her producers made that decision to just 
you know, leave that on the cutting room floor. And the thing is, it's not, I don't think by itself important, but it's the fact that this is the tip of the iceberg. It happens every single day, all the time. I mean, you know, one of my favorite examples of that was George W. Bush in one of his final debates uh, against Al Gore in the 2000 election uh, appeared to have some kind of box on under his sh well, I remember shoulder that, yeah. pad under his suit, right? And um, you know, people speculated like, was he? You know, nobody thought he was that smart, and we were wondering if like Karl Rove or someone else uh, basically had an ear uh, earpiece uh, in that and was basically uh, Cyrano de Bergeracking him the the debate answers, right? Because he did seem to perform a little better than one would have expected for George W. Bush. And um, anyway, after the election, it turned out that the New York Times had some solid reporting from experts who strongly believed and had uh, a lot of evidence to support the uh, thesis that indeed uh, Bush cheated in the debate. And if that's true, um, and it was, a remember, an insanely tight election, 537 votes in Florida made all the difference. Um, you know, it's not hard to imagine that 280 Floridians might have changed their, their votes from George W. Bush mm. to Al Gore uh, if they'd found out that George W. Bush was a cheater. Uh, but the New York Times made the editorial decision to hold the story until after the election on the grounds that it would it would have interfered with the election results. Well, and it's like, well, yeah. of course it would have interfered <laughs> with course. the election results because <laughs> it's news. And like at that rate, like why run any political news before an election, right? So, you know, I mean, it just doesn't, it is, it's, it's troublesome. I mean, you know, every editorial decision is inherently subjective, but sometimes you just hear something and it just doesn't feel right. And I think, I think that's where conservatives, I mean, you tell me, I, I feel like that's where conservatives are coming from, that this seems like, you know, once again, it's the mainstream media, which is, we know is, is, is uh, dominated by Democrats. Oh, no question. No question. Uh, I, mean, is, I mean, that's, and that's not just some, you know, right that's not a conspiracy. No, that's just, I mean, that's like if you poll members, you poll journalists, most the of the number them are has gone down. The number of people who consider themselves either Republican slash conservative in newsrooms when I started back in the 80s was somewhere in the neighborhood of 36%. Today, it's less than seven. So go on. I mean, that's that. That's right. So, I mean, it's like, there's no question about that. And I mean, and, and look, uh, I, I do agree that, uh, you know, with the cliche that um, the truth has a liberal bias, uh, maybe the truth has a left wing bias as far as I'm concerned. But the but, you know, it, it is there is a bias. And, uh, you know, you have to sort of be when you know you have a bias, that's when you have to work over. You have to bend over backwards to try to mitigate your own bias. Otherwise, you're you're, you're just not doing your job, as you said. I mean, I, I think it is a problem. I do think that being lost in this story, though, is is the question, you know, the Colin Kaepernick story is kind of amazing, right? I mean, like, even someone uh, who is a uh, such a, a liberal icon did not support him. I mean, no wonder he wasn't allowed to play ball. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Well, he wasn't allowed to play ball because the the, the economics of the NFL and, the, and frankly, the uh, audience was this will shock you ted i hope you're sitting down it's largely white <laughs> largely male with largely middle america and you know they're there with their pbbs and watching football i mean you know and i'm one of them so um 
watching watching Kaepernick kneel during the national anthem, I was raised you know, to, to you know uh, to you stand up, you take your head off, you sing the national anthem, um, and so his actions disturbed me greatly. But kneeling's uh, not exactly rude. No, 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 no. And that it's always quiet. puzzles me. It's actually dignity. It's actually had a dignity. To, it's not like finish. he. It's not like he gave the flag the finger or something. No, know? but let me finish the thought. For me, as someone who also I'm more libertarian than conservative, I said, yeah, he has an absolute right to do that. In fact, a protest in America is a beautiful thing, and I love it. So when you see someone like Kaepernick doing it, and what I think was absolutely the right way, uh, I didn't have profound problems with this. I know well, a lot of. It's also about how it's teed up, right? I mean, like, what if uh, NFL brought, uh, you know, sportscasters had just simply said, had had presented it as like, well, and, you know, and there's Colin Kaepernick, um, you know, kneeling, uh, he says in protest of uh, African-Americans who've been sh- uh, unarmed, who've been shot by police, uh, trying to draw attention to that and just left it at that instead of being like, can you believe what he's doing? Oh my God, he's not standing. I mean, he's kneeling. He's changing the balance of the <laughs> earth. We will split <laughs> off our axis and fly it to the sun. <laughs> uh, but he was calling, you know, his, which is actually kind of what they were saying, because let's face it, he was going right into the, the, the patriarchy, right into the uh, privilege and saying, you know, this is wrong. Uh, in my view, and I'm going to protest. I don't. I had no issue with it. I really. I, well, I don't even lost understand their minds. Yeah, and I think, but I think they were kind of. I think often, and you look. You and I are both political cartoonists. You and I know how it is with controversies, and a lot of the time, people are told to lose their minds when yeah. media yeah. personalities on Fox and elsewhere go. Can you believe this? This is outrageous. People are like. Oh my God, that's outrageous. They think it's an original thought, but they've been told to think that. And they're, they're but they with the, and now and now with the uh, Gruden story, coach now former coach Gruden of the of the Las Vegas Raiders gets forced to resign because of racist, misogynist comments. Which I mean, we're shocked shocked that those people would do that. But they're releasing more and more of the texts and the comments that these guys exchange with each other and gasp. They're racist. They're misogynist. They're awful. The owner, and that's the ownership and the and the management of these teams. And so Kaepernick really made a stronger and a more salient point than we even imagined. Well, I got to say, parenthetically though, I'm I am angry at Kaepernick. Um, you know, he, well, he he never ever should have taken the money. You know, he, there was a reported settlement in the air, arena of. 40, 50, 60 million dollars that he accepted from the NFL. And it came with a gag order. So he agreed not to talk about this. And look, they screwed him. They prevented him from playing ball for, for exercising his peaceful First Amendment right to protest as lackadaisically and calmly as it is possible to protest. He didn't even have a sign. And he's uh, and, and there he is, like basically blackballed from the NFL. He sued them. Uh, you know, they knew they were going to lose wrongful termination. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He knew they were going to lose. And he had plenty of money. I mean, this is a guy who had the luxury of going to the mat and saying like, yeah, let's go to trial. But instead, he wussed out and he took the money and now he's been silenced. So even though I guess $50 million is a lot of money, he's guess. Still, no, it's a lot of money. In America, it's a lot America, of money. It's American. It wasn't Canadian or Australian. No, they, these were American dollars. Um, okay. But that's he a lot was, of money. But he was, uh, or Hong Kong dollars uh, or whatever. Um, no, he was very, look, I mean, I just think it's like, it's not a lot of money to him though. I mean, 
he wasn't going to have any trouble paying his bills. He should not have taken the money. He shouldn't have settled. Um, he, you know, I think Muhammad Ali, when he was treated like crap, uh, you know, for refusing to, uh, to the, for being a, a conscientious objector, refusing to go and kill fellow people of color in Vietnam in an imperialist war of aggression. Um, you know, he paid a big price and he was not, he did not allow himself to be silenced. And I, you know, I think that's a far more admirable model, frankly. No, no, you're absolutely right. Muhammad Ali is a singular stellar, uh, 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 I don't know, person of stature in my mind. I've always liked him. Um, and I'm old enough now to, I mean, I was actually at the closed circuit broadcast of the uh, uh, Rumble in the Jungle with uh, Muhammad Ali and George Foreman. Um, I, I always respected him. I mean, he's just a great athlete. But, you know, one thing, Ted, that's amazing about Muhammad Ali is he never blamed anybody. You know, he never played the victim. In, in any of this. He said, I'm going to do this. You can shoot me. You can put me in jail. You can try me. You can find me. Do what you want, but I'm standing on this principle. So yeah, to your point, I mean, that's the gold standard in terms of protests in America. Did that did, did piss people off? You bet. I mean, my God, my father was beside himself. My father, a World War II vet, that someone would refuse to, to serve their country when they're called. But the fact is he had a moral, and it turns out he was right. <laughs> he, he was 100% right. Yeah. 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 And or so maybe we, or maybe is it, do you think it's possible that we just lost the entire Vietnam War because Muhammad Ali refused to go? And if he'd gone, it would have been like Sergeant Rock and he would have killed all the Viet Cong and we would have won. Well, what would have happened is he would have gone into the field. The Viet Cong on the other side would have stood up and says, it's Muhammad Ali. And <laughs> Dude, we're, and and then be like, we're sorry. We, we, don't, we, 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 we apologize. Whatever we did wrong. Yeah, really? Oh, God, we love you. <laughs> yeah, his, 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 I, I met him uh, in, very for a hot, hot second. Uh, back in the 1980s, uh, I was at Times Square and uh, at night, and suddenly uh, Muhammad Ali and his entourage like walked through down Broadway and uh, they're, you know, being, being followed by kids and stuff. And he was just shaking everyone's hand. He just happened. It just happened. I don't know why he was there. Uh, you know, he was long past his fighting days. But, uh, you know, the, the charisma was just, you know, palpable. It's just like that that one second of interaction was just like, holy crap. Yeah, he was uh, he, he actually came to Memphis when I was working at the Commercial Appeal there, the newspaper there. And for you kids out there, newspaper is ink on paper. Uh, very, very quaint. Uh, What's black and white and red all over? <laughs> Nothing now. Nothing. <laughs> anyway. So Muhammad Ali was somehow friendly with someone who was running for city council. He flew into Memphis and went to campaign for this guy, but he stopped by an editorial board meeting of the, uh, of the commercial appeal. So I got to sit in and talk to him and what a delight. I mean, and you're right, that charisma and that, I mean, just, he really is one of the great Americans of the 20th century truly is. And, um, you know, I, I uh, anyway, so I, I have a signed boxing glove here in my, my studio. Are you serious? I hate yeah. you. I'm so jealous. Well, he was just like, and he was, it, the Parkinson's disorder had said kicked in pretty badly at that point. And he goes, what's your name? I go, Scott, sir. I mean, you know, Mr. Ali. And he goes, and he it says to Scott, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What Ali. year, do you remember what year this was? This must have been 80, I guess I there in 86. So I'm saying 88, 89. Yes, that's around the same. Yeah, I saw, I saw him in Times Square. Maybe he ran a couple two of years cartoonists earlier. in one year. That explains <laughs> That's why he lost his mind. 
<laughs> oh my god yeah that'll do oh. it that's no so, that's a sad thing to say but oh so so i mean i guess the question is obviously katie Couric can't be fired there won't be any uh, there won't be any repercussions um i think this is one of those stories you know getting back to rbg and and katie that it's just going to be like another like it's going to be another mark against liberal media in the minds of conservatives they're going to say on Fox, like, and, you know, they, they did that. And, uh, you know, they sense, they censored themselves and protected RBG and, uh, you know, and, and it'll just be like, it just, it'll be like another example of how we live in two different countries with two different realities. And we don't see the same things or, you know, I, I don't think there's like any liberals who are waking up this morning and talking about or thinking about this story. And I don't think that's going to change. No, you're absolutely right. And it's also this, this, embracing of this narrative that you and I always bristle at because we like truth and we like, you know, <laughs> we, we like a clear narrative when, when in fact, this doesn't exist. You mentioned George W. Bush. He was smart. You know, the, the, the Republicans, he's actually very smart. He doesn't articulate himself very well, but he's actually smart. And that's horse, that's horse crap because it's like, <laughs> you're, if you're smart, you articulate yourself well. That's what smart means. In your um, native language. Yeah, Joe Joe Biden is really is like he's playing three dimensional chess. He's yeah, sharp. sharp as attack, sharp as not 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 so much, not yeah, so much. He, yeah, I mean the thing about it, I mean, look, George W. Bush wasn't as stupid as like say I used to think, but he, he was not smart. You know, I, I would say he was media had a mediocre intelligence, and I would say Joe Biden not sharp as attack. No. And never really has been. By the way, if you ever watch uh, Confirmation, the HBO show about the Anita Hill, Clarence Thomas hearing, uh, you know, uh, Greg Kinnear does an amazing Biden. And he, uh, you know, he, he really captures Biden's befuddlement even back then. Oh, really? Cool. We're to check it out. Well, we're about to wrap this segment up. Coming up next segment, we're going to talk about capitalism taking over the media and effectively destroying it for fun and profit. And now we go to the windy city of Chicago, where the staff editorial cartoonist is none other than DMZ America's own right-wing conservative, Scott Stantis. That's uh, me. The, the Chicago Tribune <laughs> is part of a chain of newspapers, uh, and they that chain of newspapers is now uh, in the clutches of a notorious media conglomerate. Uh, there's some news about it and a big article in the Atlantic. So uh, Scott, is you're obviously the person to talk about this. You've been affected by it. Uh, you know, let's, uh, oh, yeah. why should we care? You should care because it's news and what they've done. What they're, they're, First of all, okay, I'm working at the Chicago Tribune, full disclosure. I still, I still freelance for them. So just to be perfectly clear and to be clearer still, my son, uh, Spencer, also works for the Atlantic. So I just want to put all of that out there so no, we're not hiding anything. Uh, but Alden Capital uh, is known as <laughs> the destroyer of newspapers. Now, when someone like that buys your, you know, newspaper, you get a little nervous. I recognize what the writing was on the wall with the newspaper business. We already had some vulture capital. Just curiosity. Did they buy, uh, so did they buy the entire Tribune chain or? They bought they... the chain. They bought the chain, which includes not just the Chicago Tribune, but also uh, other papers like the Baltimore Sun, the Orlando Sentinel. Uh, the, by circulation, it makes them the second largest owners of newspapers in the country. 
what makes the Atlantic article so chilling, it's this piggybacks on other articles written about Alden Capital, is Alden Capital is a secretive, secretive outfit. They don't even have an office, Ted. They, they rent a desk in a strip mall. I'm not making this up. Where <laughs> okay? is the strip mall? In Florida. Will that surprise you? Florida. And it was the, the Alden Capital was started by a guy named Randall Smith. And we're going to come back to Randall Smith in a moment. And his protege, Heath Freeman, Heath Freeman, who's been described as the ultimate bro, just so to paint a picture. Randall Smith is also a big contributor, say it with me, kids, to Donald Trump and a big supporter. They tried to like do what they call doorstep him because he's very secretive. There's almost no photographs of this guy. There's no... And they tried to find like doorstepping is a journalism is a term meaning what it sounds like. You stand on the person's doorstep and wait for them to come home and you shove a microphone in their face and say, why are you such an awful person? They in trying to find Randall Smith. He owns not one, not two, not five, not 10, but 15 mansions in the, uh, in the Miami area. 15. Wait, does he live in these mansions or are they like Airbnb? <laughs> That'd be great. <laughs> like, dude, I had a bunch of dudes like partying in the house and they totally lost the remote control. <laughs> Rent this place and you can help destroy journalism at the same time. It's I mean, well, awesome. I mean, and it's on I the mean, beach. Well, this reminds me of when John McCain and his uh, wealthy uh, wife could not answer the question how many homes they had. They, he, 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 he really wasn't sure. Um, yeah. But wait, why would you need 15 homes in the same town out of curiosity? That's an excellent question. They don't answer that in this article. I've never heard that addressed. But Randall Smith and Heath Freeman, what they do is they buy newspapers. Now, why do you care? It's a newspaper, especially if you're under 40. You don't read a newspaper. I mean, you, I mean, when was the last time you picked up a physical newspaper? But the webs, you know, their, their presence online, their, their newsrooms do still aggressively cover local issues. Well, what Mr. Smith and Mr. Freeman do is they, they jack up exorbitantly the amounts of their subscriptions, knowing that the subscribers they still have are roughly, you know, in their 80s and 90s and don't pay much attention to how much they're paying for the subscription to their newspaper. Uh, they cut staffs significantly. They came in and had a 30% or 36% cut in staffing when they bought Tribune uh, Publishing. And then they just leach out as much money as they can. And so uh, being in that newsroom, I can tell you that people were doing, were already doing two, three jobs. Now they're doing seven to 10 jobs. Uh, there's little to no coverage of city council. Uh, so what does that mean? Well, the practical I, I result. Mean, what is the, I mean, I know, so this is all bad behavior, right? But what, I mean, besides, is there any motivation here other than just simply short-term profit? And no, just none. They do not. They've never, ever expressed an, uh, the idealism of journalism. They don't care. They've never said it. They literally, Heath so, Freeman is the only one who's visited any of the properties and every property he goes to, he says, like the douche that he is, what do these people do? Well, so it's so okay. So they're so they're vulture <laughs> capitalists, and I think people need to understand. So, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, Scott. But my impression is okay. So, um, from you know, I used to work on Wall Street. You most people would look at uh, print news as a dying sector, uh, on the ropes, on the way out. So buying it, you're not going to. There's no traditional model of <clears throat> of fixing it up, patching it up. Uh, and trying to turn it profitable and then uh, selling it 
for, for because it's worth more in the future. You buy it, <clears throat> you try to extract the real estate value because a lot of newspapers used to own big, expensive yeah. downtown yeah. offices like the Chicago Tribune Tower, famously in downtown on the Miracle Mile in Chicago. Uh, and, <clears throat> and then you just basically... Uh, sell an inferior, cheaply made profit uh, uh, product to yeah, the yeah. dying, remaining elderly print subscribers. You yes. try to do something online if you can, but you try to do it on the cheap. Yes. Um, you know, synergistically, you try to sell the same articles across platforms so that the Orlando Sentinel website runs the same articles as the Baltimore Sun website, and they're all produced out of the same place and they look the same cut and paste, cut and paste, cut and paste. But then what's the end game? In the end game, basically you just keep climbing up the mast of the Titanic and then you jump into yes. the lifeboat at the end. That's it, basically? Yeah, that's beautifully put. That's exactly what they do. Now, um, there may be a cynical under his belly, which is weird saying that we just mentioned. This, so <laughs> do. There's actually a cynical, a cynical underbelly to the cynical overbelly. Yes, indeed. Randall Smith, as I mentioned at the top of the segment, is a ma is a major contributor to Donald Trump and his campaigns. We all know how they feel about the mainstream media. This, part of this may be I'm going to profit from the destruction of this thing I hate. So, you know, let's let's you know piggyback that onto this story, which is horrific. Yes. So what they've done is they continue to leech as much money out of these things as they possibly these properties as they possibly can. You sell the real estate, not a hell of a lot of that left left in these places, but they what's left gets sold. And then they do this other model until it dies. Now, what does that mean? Uh, the uh, the Newhouse family, which owns papers like, well, here in Alabama, the Birmingham News, the Montgomery uh, Advertiser not the Montgomery Advertiser, I'm sorry, the Mobile Press Register in the Huntsville Times, they've gone to three days a week. They've cut the staff down to next to nothing. And the, it gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And the, pro, and the product is worse and worse and worse to the point, Ted, where here, now, here in Birmingham, which is a city of a million, metro area of a million people, uh, they have no reporter dedicated to covering the city council nor the county commission. The county commission was in charge just a decade ago to one of the largest bankruptcies in the history of our country. And now nobody is watching it. Nobody in the media is watching it on a full-time basis. So that's the danger of what's happening here. And so to put it in broad strokes, um, we, we are starting to see newspaper uh, cities with fairly large populations uh, lose their newspapers entirely, right? Like most notably, uh, Canton, Ohio, um, which is not the smallest little town. Um, it's a Rust Belt town in eastern Ohio, not far from Akron. Um, they uh, lost their paper. I think it had some kind of really funny name, like the Depository or something like that. Uh, but there's, it's now a town that we're going to... So I guess the question now is, is there a future in which a big city like Chicago or Baltimore may have no newspaper at all? And and is that when and what kind of timeline are we looking at, and and in and I think in the context of the fact that at this point, ninety percent of all news uh, journalism in the United States is generated by a dead tree print newspaper, which means if you read it on the internet or you hear it on the radio or you watch it on television, it was originally reported by a print. Uh, media outlet. So the question is twofold. 
are we going to get to a point where A, there's a lot of major cities that have no newspaper at all, and B, uh, will that does that mean that that news coverage will disappear permanently, or does it mean that at some point uh, radio and the web and 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 uh, TV are going to have to uh, you know start doing their own reporting? Well, it's kind of the wild. That's a great question. It's kind of the wild west right now because what's happening in some places, like Mississippi, for instance, the Clarion Ledger owned by Gannett, uh, who, who we thought was the wor- the worst it could get, we were wrong. <laughs> but Gannett has essentially gutted the newsroom. There's no real serious coverage. So uh, one of the founders of FedEx lives in Jackson, Mississippi. There are other multi-multi-bazillionaires who have started a not-for-profit site called Mississippi Today. And they have an actual newsroom. They cover actual news. They break actual news. They partner with some others. Uh, I think the NPR station, I know that they have. And they're, you mentioned about if you hear a news story, not just from radio or television, but also tweet and more importantly, Facebook and Instagram. Those stories came from, from you know, old, old media. They came from, from tree-based media. With, they still uh, do. Yeah. Yeah. So those are the guys who are still doing journalism and still doing the work. They're, I mean, and, and, and the circumstances they're working under, they being the reporters and editors, is so arduous and so grinding that many of them are quitting. Um, so what's the timeline? I think we're going to see, you, you see every year, the, if you look at a map and uh, Pointer produces this, uh, Pointer Institute down in, in, in um, St. Pete, Florida, uh, their, their Institute for Journalism shows news deserts. And they're growing bigger and bigger and bigger because what's happening is weeklies are being shut down because they're not profitable. Uh, Small dailies are certainly shutting down at an accelerated rate. And now you're looking at the Chicago Tribune. The Chicago Tribune, I'm sorry, the Chicago Tribune is a big deal. It's a bit, it had a big reputation. It had bureaus across the globe. It broke stories. It was an important newspaper. Um, And it, it very likely, I'd say within the next, five to eight years will go away. It simply will not exist anymore. Or if it does, it's going to be a, a, just a real shell of itself, some kind of web page. Uh, but th- that doesn't do a very good job. Uh, on the other side in Chicago, interestingly enough, the Sun-Times just announced that it's going to be purchased by WBEZ, which is the NPR public radio station there in town. Mm. And they're going to combine their news gathering sources. And so um, What's interesting to me, and this is, a, this, is, this is inside baseball, but it's a fascinating story, Ted. They actually printed up letters at the Sun-Times that the editor was going to sign and give to each, each employee. It was so dire, the letter said, tomorrow is going to be our last edition of the Sun-Times. They were that close to going out of business. Before this deal got cut. <laughs> no, no, no. This was years ago. Oh, and then so what, no, so what happened? Someone came forward and bought it, some deep deep pocketed. I'm not sure if this was before or after the Murdoch purchase. Remember that? And that's when that's when everyone lost their minds and left the paper because they thought Murdoch, it can't get any worse than Murdoch. Yeah. Well, that's, <laughs> oh, no, well, yes capitalism, again, folks, capitalism and the American presidency are both studies in entropy. Everything can <laughs> and absolutely will get worse and worse and worse. It reminds me of like, you know, uh, we we used to we used to sit there and uh, and moan and bemoan the loss of independent bookstores to uh, you know Barnes and Noble and now it's like man everyone would love to have a Barnes and Noble <laughs> you know it's damn like, you Amazon yes yeah. exactly and I mean so you know one day you know we're going to be like oh my god all the WalMarts are closing 
What are we, that's that's so awful. Where are we going to buy stuff? <laughs> They've all well, been driven out of business by online. And that's the cycle. And the danger is, I mean, think about, okay, no news coverage in Chicago. Because you know it doesn't have a reputation uh, for. Clean they well, they've never I, had they've never had corruption there, so it's not an never, issue. And never. you know, po- the <laughs> police brutality's never been an issue, and crime not at all. No, no, not at all. No, in fact, uh, the thirty second, thirty third alderman has just been convicted and sent to jail in Chicago. So they actually have quorum. So I have <laughs> I have not made up made this up. I wish I had. I've made up other things, but not not this. But uh, you know, the great quote is that this is going to be a. The demise of American print journalism is, you know, inaugurating a golden era of political corruption. Uh, certainly, um, you know, for another time, we can talk about the L.A. Times and in conjunction with that, uh, you know, so, yeah, people are, might be wondering, like, well, again, still, yeah, 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 you told me why I should care, but really why should I care? And I was thinking about, like, you know, you, you were talking about the news deserts that Pointer puts up and there's... Uh, about, I guess, five or 10 years ago, I was I was uh, reading about radio deserts, about how there's, you know, sort of like video killed the radio star kind of. And there's um, ra- and there's all sorts of areas across the country that don't have um, radio st- that have radio stations that are basically piped in from somewhere else. Yeah, yeah. And and so because of that, a lot of them disproportionately are in tornado country. And so literally people die because the local rate, they tune into the local radio station, like let's say in Abilene, never realizing that it's piped in from say Washington DC and that like there's a tornado heading there and there's no tornado warning to hear on your local radio station. So you can take, you can take shelter. I mean, this has real life and death consequences. Yeah, it really does. And like you said, just the day to day practical stuff that you just mentioned. I mean, you know, you're in Abilene and you're going, you know, you're turning on the radio and say, Oh my God, the weather's bad. Let's check it out. And you're here, this is the heavy, heavy monster sound. Here's Ted Nugent and Cat Scratch Fever. <laughs> and you're like, Oh, well, I guess everything's okay. Um, you know, and then it's like, <laughs> Why'd grandma just go by the window? <laughs> <laughs> right that's the best texas accent i can muster there i'm sorry I, texas uh, accent's very hard well there's several texas accents well right? it's a drawl it's not like down here in alabama where it's really slow and drawn out you add syllables to words mm, words you know, that's like Good God, you just want to reach down their throat and pull words out. <laughs> just, just yeah, maybe a lot of those words probably should just stay where they are right now. <laughs> just saying. Just saying. Yeah, you're probably right, given what's happening down here in the, uh, the much Trump love. That is, you must run. You, I mean, if you're running for like county coroner, Ted, here, you got to say that you love Donald Trump. Well, he, well he is, he's good. He's good for business. If you're the county coroner, uh, you know, don't wear those masks. Uh, it'll, they're only going to kill you uh, or something. Vaccines. Are you kidding me? Come on, kids. No one needs those. So I think uh, so. It's uh, now it's going to be time uh, to move on to our next topic for today on DMZ America. We're going to be talking about if you thought it couldn't get worse on social media and social media couldn't become more toxic. Of course, you were mistaken. Uh, Entropy continues. We'll get back. Well, stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Ted Rall here with Scott Stantis. You're listening to DMZ America podcast. 
And now we're going to talk a little bit about the a comparison that's been making the rounds uh, on media, social media being compared to cigarette addiction, and namely the uh, effect of social media, particularly on young people. Uh, James Homan uh, has a piece in the October 6th edition of the Washington Post in which he cites whistleblower from Facebook, Frances Hagen, and uh, in which she says that uh, big, that social media is this generation's big tobacco, that they hook kids on their products and lie about their business practices, uh, Facebook and Instagram in particular, according to this whistleblower, uh, tries to addict 14-year-old kids with little hits of dopamine when friends like their posts. It's just like cigarettes, Haugen said uh, to the U.S. Senate. Teenagers don't have good self-regulation. They say explicitly, I feel bad when I use Instagram, and yet I can't stop. Uh, some people point out that there are differences between cigarettes and social media. Obviously, uh, you know, social media does not give you lung cancer. Um, but... Also, uh, you know, according to a lot of experts say that there is a societal interest in allowing children to use the Internet in particular. But uh, here's what Facebook had to say. Unlike tobacco, Facebook actually adds tremendous value, said Antigone Davis, uh, the Facebook global head of safety. People, <laughs> Sorry, I don't really? make this up. Global what's, head. Of what's safety. that title again? That's going to be the name of my new emo band. Hello, we're Global Head of Safety. Antigone Davis. I mean, that's Antigone's an amazing name. Um, people use it to, to grow their small businesses. Yeah, but not from 14-year-old kids. They use it to create groups to fight things like domestic violence or, or maybe to cause domestic violence. They use it for creating community for their soccer teams. How encounters only about 10% of people who smoke ever get lung cancer. Uh, responding to the Facebook argument that eight in 10 young Facebook users have a neutral or positive experience. The idea that 20% of your users could be facing serious mental health issues is shocking. Well, I mean, look, I don't use Instagram. I can't, uh, I tried to use it. Uh, I can't get people to follow my cartoons on Instagram. I don't think Instagram is really good for political cartoons at all. As far as I can tell, most of our peers haven't done very well with it. Uh, but I, you know, I, I it definitely from, um, you know, I, I see the effects even in the way that uh, young girls uh, take selfies in the streets and they're sort of posing. They 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 flip their hair back, kind of like in a very porny kind of way. Um, it seems like this the the selfie culture on Instagram really kind of encourages premature, highly sexualized behavior, oh, particularly incredible. among young girls. Well, and just I, the 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 way it injects itself into our lives. I was at the uh, Chicago Art Institute, one of my favorite museums in the world, and they have it, one of the best self-portraits by uh, Vincent Van Gogh. And there was a young woman uh, taking a selfie, doing the duck lips and the peace sign in front of the painting. And I tend to keep my disgust to myself, but I couldn't help it, Ted. I went, I look at her, I go, Really? You've got to be kidding. You're standing in front of one of the most magnificent pieces of art created in art by our species, and you're doing that? 
And she scurried off because she wasn't used to talking to a human being, I think, face to face. Uh, you scared her, Scott. I did. I well, that's the and I, I wasn't leaning in or anything, I swear. Um, but we've known that the Internet was bad. I was uh, Milt Rosenberg had a tremendous show. And if you haven't heard it, it's, you can find it online. He's since passed away, but he was a, a truly great man and intellectual and uh, a psychologist professor from the University of Chicago. And one, I was early on, on a guest on his show and afterwards we we're just talking. I said, the internet, are they, are you finding that, I mean, is there a possibility that this is going to, um, is, is, is this going, is this going to hurt brain structure? Is it going to impact it? He says, oh, it already is. Ted, this was 12 years ago when scientists and people who do who do clinical research knew that that social media was bad for you. And it also changed, like I said, it changes brain structure in the way we talk now. okay, can we can we go into old poop mode here for a second? Talking to younger people, people 25 and younger who grew up with this, who, you know, when they went to restaurants, their their families handed them an iPad or the smartphone to play with. So their communication skills are abysmal in terms of face-to-face, what, what we as primates, how we communicate face-to-face, eye contact, f- facial expression, all this stuff. The impact, I completely and utterly agree that this is as bad as cigarettes. Well, utterly. okay. All right. Well, so then here we're going to, we, I suspect we may be running into a, a disagreement, Scott. I mean, look, no. if that's true, cigarettes are regulated by the government. Right. And 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 I think we all agree that certainly um, the fact that that children are not legally allowed to purchase cigarettes is a good thing. Although when we were you and I were growing up, sixteen year olds could legally buy cigarettes, uh, and uh, and now I think it's twenty one in most states. Did you smoke when you were a kid? No, I, I have literally never had a cigarette in my mouth, lit or unlit, ever. I want to change that. No, <laughs> I'm kidding. I that was you. maybe the creepiest thing you've ever said. Um, wait, so <laughs> stick right? around. <laughs> There's a, the, the, the addition is not over. So, so like, so, but I mean, I think, look, I, uh, look, I, I'm inherently, I'm, while I'm skeptical of, you know, well, we sound like two old guys complaining about new technology. You know, I, I'm always aware of the of the history of this sort of discussion. You know, when paperback books were introduced in the 19th century, they were viewed as a harbinger of doom because uh, they were going to encourage low quality reading over the more upscale, better reading that comes out of a hardcover or ideally, a, you know, illuminated manuscripts, perhaps. Sure. Sure. And, and um, by the way, I want to point out that Ted and I are also really, really, really aware of the irony of this conversation we're having yeah. on a podcast about That's social true. media. Okay. Which we so really hope people will share on Facebook and on Instagram and on <laughs> Absolutely. Twitter. Um, but so please share and share generously. Um, <laughs> but I do think I do think that the um, that, that social media is toxic uh, on in general and particularly for children. I don't think. I'm just going to put it out there. I don't think uh, social media, it should be legal for anyone under the age of 18 to use social media. It just should not be permitted. Like certainly you should have access to the World Wide Web, but, uh, you know, and, and, and other things, but not that. And I know it would be very hard to uh, enforce my proposal. Uh, you would also have to get rid of anonymity on the internet. I think in order to be online, you should have to be registered on under an ID. 
so that, you know, this is going to put a real end to cyber stalking, mm. identity fraud, uh, you know, um, death threats. I mean, just yesterday I was dying of laughter. I read that Facebook has a rule that says it is okay to threaten death to celebrities on their platform. You will not be deplatformed from Facebook if you say you want a random celebrity dead, but uh, an individual, you're not allowed to call for their death. And so uh, we are supposed to celebrate as of yesterday, Scott, you and I have now joined the ranks of individuals because journalists and activists are no longer allowed uh, by Facebook to be subject to random death threats. Whereas apparently Tom Cruise is. Uh, so what? Uh, yeah, literally, uh, I swear to God, this is true. Um, I mean, that's where we're at here. We're literally, it's, it's, we have a, a um, you know, we have this completely unaccountable system that says it's okay to threaten people's lives on the internet. And I'm sorry, I don't think it's okay. I mean, I remember some dude threatening Jodie Foster and that didn't work out well. Um, you know, no, and I, you know, you, you think that we're going to disagree and we're not. Um, I think you're going to have some controls. I mean, this is one of those instances where I'm a free speech absolutist. However, uh, you don't have a right to threaten Ted Rawl. You don't have a right to threaten Scott Stantis. And both you and I have had very serious death threats. Uh, Including on, on social media. Yeah. And it's terrifying. Uh, I've had a social media site dedicated to hating me and my comics trip, Prickly City. And what, and I thought it was kind of quaint and funny. And they, you know, that was great until they posted my home address. Yeah, that's yeah. Well, that's it. You know, it's I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, I had, uh, as you know, Scott, I write for the Wall Street Journal sometimes, and I had written a piece for them that they turned down, but I did syndicate it, uh, which I think you read about uh, this exact issue um, about. Uh, yeah, there's all these data um, uh, merchandise companies where, you know, you can just anybody who's listening right now can just go online and and uh, Google their own name. And there's a strong chance they'll see part of or their entire home address, maybe part of or all of their home phone number or their cell number on this. And, you know, I mean, look, we grew up when the the only way your your home address and phone number could be publicized was if you allowed the phone company to publish it in the, in the phone book. And if you didn't want to, you could be unlisted. Yeah, um, you had to pay for it. You did have to pay for it for a long time. Then I think for a while, then they made it a free service. Uh, I would pay good money to be unlisted. So um, did I. And it's not, I mean, I can't believe we don't have this choice. I mean, it is insane to me that like any random jerk or psychopath can come, can like look you up online, find out where you live and go to your home. That's insane. You mentioned that, you know, the question when they had the hearings on Facebook, well, we need to regulate it. Well, what does that look like? That's always been the retort, especially from mm. the right. Well, what does that look like? Well, what it could look like, for, for instance, is you, A, you cannot have a non de plume. You have to use your name, your real identity. Yeah. Two, yeah. you can have a URL. Although there's a, you know, the counter to that is, of course, uh, people say, well, what about like LGBTQ people? What about... Um, people who are overseas who live in uh, under authoritarian regimes where they're political dissidents, you know, shouldn't they, don't they need anonymity? 
Well, there's ways to go around that with a group. And like I would say, if you're in some terrible country that, you know, you're fighting, fighting the power, there's ways around this. But what you can also do in terms of regulating for keep 16 years and youngers from going on is just change the URL instead of making it's facebook.com. It ha- social media sites have to be Facebook. You know, so, you know, so or something, you know, you can change it to that. And that gives the parents a, t- a very easy tool to use that they can block this for their kid. Right. That um, well, kids will always find a way. I mean, and and the thing is, sure. that's that's the counter to this, right? I mean, like uh, like my own kid who's seventeen. You know, he recently really like, oh, dad, I have a problem with my PayPal. I'm like, you're on PayPal. You can't. You're not allowed to be on PayPal when you're under eighteen. He's like, oh, I've been on it for three years. <laughs> it's like so they do find a way. It's like <laughs> oh, you yeah, know, no. I got a- I got porn first time I saw porn. I was eight. You know, I mean. I know it was weird, wasn't it? It it was weird. Yeah, it was confusing. Anyway, <laughs> we're still, and it remains so. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so yeah, there people are going to be able to find a way to abuse stuff. They, that's just how human beings are. But for the prime, but, but don't make but it easy. Driving drunk is against the law, right? But people still do it, right? Uh, but, but it's a good thing that it, do it's it. a good thing that it is against the law because exactly. if it wasn't, it would be worse. Exactly. So there are ways and simple ways. I always thought it was crazy when they were talking about regulating pornography. You talk about, uh, you just mentioned porn and uh, the, 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 they were having hearings, which I would love closed door hearings, sadly, because I would love to watch that. But on Capitol Hill, why not? Why didn't they just allow and one of the ideas that was proposed? Why didn't they just, again, come back to what I just said? change the url that any porn site it's dot xxx okay but what's the point of that then how does that what does that solve you can put in filters very simply put in filters on your computers and on your even on your server in your home that would not allow um you know a computer in on that system to log on to the to porn okay you would you would need a regulatory agency that would enforce this mechanism so that if let's say a porn company were to use dot com instead uh, there has to be some a punishment. There has to be a, a there has to be a cyber police that tracks these people down and arrests them. Right, and there always I mean there already there already is I mean I mean but it's so under under undermanned under under staffed that I mean I think you need a federal agency. I mean there's and you'd need local. I mean local law enforcement have like each police department typically in a, like in a small town might have one or two police officers who are online sometimes looking yeah. at this stuff. Uh, it's it's basically a completely unregulated. Well, it's, it's slightly regulated, but the fact is it's also understaffed. And the, the New York Times a few months ago did a really interesting article about uh, uh, underage trafficking, sex trafficking. And they just don't have the staff. I mean, that's something that I think everyone in the country can agree on should be stopped. And Maybe fire some drone operators and have and reassign them to maybe this kind of job because they were talking about they they literally have to prioritize the the crimes like here's a kid who's being abused who's two uh so what should happen to face what should happen to facebook i mean look facebook is like really i mean you know i mean i think we could kind of all agree that it's toxic but is the behavior really illegal or should it be made illegal? I mean, you know, is this a company that should be broken up? I mean, is it a company that, or should we just shrug our shoulders and, and move on? Well, and, Facebook itself is asked to be regulated. True. I mean, 
I mean, like most big corporations, they go and they say, regulate us. We, and so then they, yeah, they, they, they can, need, it helps them. It reduces their legal exposure. It tells them what the, what the playing field is, what the rules are. And so right. they, so, they so but they're not doing it. And, and but what does it look Congress like? Congress has, has regulation. dropped the ball. Well, because you have a, re, a strong Republican um, instinct against regulation, I share it. But I think in this instance, you're going to have to be creative and look at how you can do it. I think you start with the Ted Rawl model. Let's call it the Ted Rawl bill, which you get 16 years and youngers off of it and you uh, get rid of anonymity, period. Mm-hmm. And if you are caught, you know, creating, you know, I'm actually Brian Scott, mm-hmm. um, then I get then there's a significant fine. Boom. And that, and you start from that and you start. The danger is that then regulation creeps up and gets worse and gets more onerous. And then you, you've pretty much shut down. And then all of a sudden you have First Amendment police who are going to determine what is and is not legitimate speech. And that's, that's a danger. Which currently we have on Facebook. I mean, you know, like you and I both have, I, I don't know if it's happened to you yet. And it has not, has not yet happened to me. That's true. Uh, but we've have co- we have colleagues whose cartoons yeah. have been removed uh, by algorithms, presumably on Facebook and Twitter um, for no good reason, usually just because they picked up a name. Like, for example, uh, I think it was Chris Britt, our fellow uh, cartoonist at Counterpoint, did a cartoon where he mentioned neo-Nazis, criticizing them and their support for Donald Trump and Donald Trump's um, suppose you know his acceptance of their support and uh just because nazi the word nazi was in it the cartoon was taken down and censored um you know because they do it all they do it it's bad enough that they're doing it but the but the fact that they're doing it using keywords without a human being reviewing it is even worse well in fact uh, some some people on uh, if you listen to happen to listen to Sputnik radio uh, they come out and they talk about this at great length about uh, the algorithms and AI and how it's actually pretty racist and pretty sexist and pretty onerous. So, you know, I th- and I think they have, they make a really strong legitimate point that who sets up the AI, who sets up the algorithm. And, they, and these can be, like I said, incredibly destructive. And you mentioned uh, Chris Britt is, <laughs> is, is anything but, if you're familiar with his cartoons, anything but a fascist. And he will not support the yeah, Nazis. He's a, he's a, he's a big uh, progressive Democrat for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, so to have him knocked off because he mentioned the word Nazi, it's. <laughs> and it's really, it, I mean, honestly, I think it's almost, it, this has probably happened to most political cartoonists at some point. Uh, it hasn't happened to me. Hasn't I'm, happened to me, but it will. I'm surprised it hasn't happened to me yet. Yeah, you're more verbose than you're actually have much stronger point of view than I do. You're better at the job than I am. So oh, I don't know about that. Well, you, you, uh, your your art's prettier. Oh, thank you. Well, yeah, and I think that's what the that's what the prize people like. So well, so far they don't. <laughs> so yeah. Far, so, so far, forty well, years Pulitzer free. So then there are people who probably should be censored. And uh, I was thinking about that this morning. Listening to talking about Christy Todd Whitman, the woman who famous for telling us that the air at ground zero was perfectly fine within hours after the 9-11 attacks. Uh, Christy Todd Whitman, former EPA uh, director under George W. Bush and governor of New Jersey, and at one time possible future first woman Republican president, uh, is trying to move the GOP back to the quote unquote center. I was laughing. 
we should talk about that. We're talking about Absolutely. that after the break. Absolutely. All right. So stay tuned. Hi, I'm Ted Rawl, and I'm here with Scott Stantis. You're listening to DMZ America. And now it's time to talk about one of my least favorite, favorite topics, namely <laughs> the, the constant urge of mainstream media maniacs to try to say that moderation is good and that the world needs to be more moderate. Uh, you remember the Lincoln Project from the 2020 election. That, of course, worked really well. Well, I mean, I guess you could say actually it did. Yeah, sort of. it actually did. Although I don't think it moved the needle enough to put Joe Biden into office. But um, the latest such mm. effort is uh, led by former New Jersey governor and EPA director Christine Todd Whitman, uh, the uh, the woman who was famous for telling New Yorkers that they should go out and roll around and suck in the asbestos dust <laughs> after the 9-11 attacks, about five minutes after the towers came down. It's all safe. It's like, uh, Christine, have you had any of that air tested? Oh, no, no, didn't, didn't bother to do that. Anyway, so Whitman just co-authored a piece with uh, Miles Taylor, who no one remembers, was the head of Homeland Security uh, under uh, Donald J. Trump, or no, sorry, I'm lying. He was the chief of staff of the Department of Homeland Security, whatever that is. Anyway, these two uh, sort of moderate centrist Republicans uh, wrote a piece in the New York Times, and they're starting a new organization that's uh, trying to encourage uh, moderate Republicans to defeat uh, more radical Trump MAGA Republicans. Uh, in their piece, they wrote, rational Republicans are losing the party civil war, and the only near-term way to battle pro-Trump extremists is for all of us to team up on key races and overarching political goals with our longtime political opponents, the Democrats. In other words, they are encouraging in races where it's a right-wing Republican running against a centrist Democrat for Republican voters to vote for the Democrat and vice versa, they would also like, although this is not their emphasis, but I heard them discuss this on NPR this morning, uh, that they would like uh, people who are dismayed by progressives uh, and like AOC, uh, in races where there's a center-right Republican running against a radical left Democrat, uh, as if there's such a thing as a radical left Democrat, uh, to vote for the uh, centrist. In other words, vote for the centrist in all races, regardless of party. Uh, they, they continued, the best hope for the rational remnants of the Republican Party is for us to form an alliance with Democrats to defend American institutions, defeat far-right candidates, and elect honorable representatives next year. Isn't that Honorable representatives, isn't that a oxymoron? Including Just a, bit. a strong contingent of moderate <laughs> Democrats. Isn't strong and moderate an oxymoron? Anyway, I always <sighs> laugh about dead, this dead, stuff dead. because look, there is no, I'm sorry, moderation is dead. And thank God. If you're going to have an opinion, have an opinion. Uh, we don't, this country never, you know, needed uh, moderation. What we need is strong, good ideas. Uh, that come from some sort of ideological center, whether that's left, right, or something else. Benjamin Franklin called himself a radical moderate. And I think that there you can, I disagree with you, Ted. I think you can have 
uh, you can be a moderate and be- you can believe uh, some of the Democratic platform. You can believe some of or subscribe to some of the Republican platform, but you don't have to be this lockstep. You know, let's throw everything out and burn down the barn in order for, for things to work. I mean, I get what you're saying. And I, I actually on a lot of things agree with you. I mean, I, in terms of radical movement, radical uh, action. But what she's talking about is, is there is there a squishy middle that still exists in this country? It did for decades. I mean, you had a Republican Party that could have both, uh, you know, uh, a Ronald Reagan, but it could also have a Nelson Rockefeller. It could a Democratic Party that could have a George Wallace, but also have, uh, you know, a George McGovern. And we've lost that. I mean, neither party has the wide tent that they both had and created really interesting debates within the parties. I mean, you were part of it. You were you became politically aware during the McGovern era. True. Um, you worked, weren't you a delegate for Walter Mondale or for Ted Kennedy? For Ted Kennedy. Mm-hmm. That's right. So you saw that Ted Kennedy, the radical, the progressive side of the party against the moderate side represented by President Carter. I mean, there it actually created a platform, a party platform that was more electable. I Listen, I worked at... Wait, full I thought of, that didn't work out very well for Jimmy Carter and... Well, uh, in 76, in 80, not, 80, not so much. Well, when you kind of have, you know, you have stagflation you tell them people the solution is wear a damn sweater uh that's a that's a problem uh, i guess where i'm going with all this is can there be is there room for moderation are there moderates anymore as a someone who grew up and worked in republican politics in my early life and that was my early career course which obviously i didn't end up following uh, there is always this debate always this 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 wide spectrum of, of thought and now they're gone and so what's happened to the republican party as we all know since 2016 is allegiance to an individual not idealism not the thought that you know smaller smaller government less taxes that type of thing now it's nothing more than allegiance to donald trump and that's terrifying that's 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 totalitarianism that's fascism that's that's and that's no, not it's not fascism I mean, you don't think yeah. so I mean, well, look, I mean, I don't think Donald Trump was a good president, but I think it's a little oversold. I mean, first of all, it's kind of an insult to fascism. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, we don't want to do that. Well, I mean, I mean, honestly, people should know what fascism is. And it's, you know, it's, it's a topic of great interest to me. Uh, I studied under Robert O. Paxton at Columbia University, who wrote The Anatomy of Fascism, and he's arguably the nation's leading expert on the subject. Um, you know, I mean... America doesn't, you know, has a lot of fascist tendencies, but it's really the authoritarianism that one has to worry about here. You know, the idea that, you know, we have God and country and uh, militarism, uh, you know, the flag, mother and apple pie. Those are like the the tendency to, you know, like, for example, when uh, people are pulled over by the police and they say, well, you know, you have to be compliant. You have to be polite to the officer. Well, I mean, that's not what the Constitution says. If a cop can pull you over and say, what the heck? And you're allowed to say, what the hell do you want, you jerk? You know, what's up, fat ass? You can say that. I mean, you know, it's not, is it a good idea? No, but it, that is, those are our rights. And the fact that we think it's not our rights, that's creeping authoritarianism. Uh, Donald, I mean, the fealty to, I mean, look, Republicans traditionally have always fallen in line, uh, whereas uh, Democrats fall in love, they say. And um, th- I think basically, Repu- you know, people overstate the importance of Donald Trump. I think Trump 
would, I mean, basically whoever the nominee is, Republicans will vote for. It's very unusual for the Republicans to nominate someone that uh, grassroots Republican voters will just sort of say, yeah, I'm not that into him and I'm just not going to vote for, I'm just not going to vote the way that, you know, Democrats looked at Hillary Clinton and and decided they just weren't going to vote. That's, Republicans aren't like that. Donald Trump just happens to be the current boss, uh, the current figurehead. I mean, yeah, Republicans turned out for Bob Dole. I mean, you know, they'll, they'll turn out for anyone. I mean, you know. Well, not in very big numbers. They're a unified and, party. Yeah, they are. But they're right now, and I, I disagree with you, Ted. I think you can not overstate. I don't think it's overstating the importance of Donald Trump in the political, particularly in the context of Republican politics. What he's done to the party is I, I was mentioning off the air, we were chatting, and I mentioned that there are people here in Alabama running for coroner, coroner, county coroner, you know, dead people, uh, and finding out why, why they're dead. And they still have to say, they still talk about their allegiance to Donald Trump. By the way, like, how do you run for coroner? Like, man, you, sh- you should see, you know, I autopsy like nobody else. Or like, you don't want that... <laughs> You don't want that liberal coroner, you know, who's just going to go easy on, you know, on the autopsies, you know, and I mean, I'm really good in there. You know I mean? Like, yes, yeah, I really break the order. I'm like Scully in, in, in X-Files, man. I, I coronate like with the best. I mean, how do you, how do you claim that you're a better coroner? You love Donald Trump more than anything <laughs> in the world. It's like every time I cut into a corpse, I think of Donald J. Trump. Yeah, I don't. I think that's a great question. Usually they run on a post and usually they're in office for 30 years. Usually it's the, the kindly old, you know, pathologist who decides to run for that office. And they don't I, even have to be kindly. I mean, after all, all their all their patients are dead. Yeah, they don't have many hey, complaints. Do your worst. <laughs> <laughs> I just think you could you make. That's their slogan when they run. <laughs> He'll do his worst. They don't care. There are no complaints. I mean, no look, complaints it, look, at all. look, if, I mean, you know, if you think about it, when it comes to a corner, if they really screw up, like then, you know, they bring the dead back to life and we don't want that. I mean, you know, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's funny is uh, there's a corner and again, here in Alabama, this will surprise you not at all. You know, and this talks to another, this is another podcast, but the militarization mm-hmm. of the cops, right? The military was getting rid of yet another Hummer personnel carrier, which is, you know, depleted uranium kind of thing. And this guy, they said, who wants it? And a guy, a coroner outside of a small county here in Alabama said, I'll take it. <laughs> I'm just, just just thinking grandma wandered off. God bless her. And she dropped dead in the forest. And this guy shows up in a fully militarized Hummer to pick up the body. It's like. Go figure. Um, yeah, that's like an article I just read the uh, other day about the market in the trafficked market in uh, uh, in bones. Like, there's some guy on TikTok who's a famous human bone salesman, and he has tons of them and sells them. And apparently, a lot of them were sourced from grave robbing. Also, a lot of them were sourced from uh, you know Native Americans. Uh, you know, kind of like unscrupulous really? source anyway that's a that's a that's neither here nor there but um what about i mean so 
look, Scott, you're a lifelong Republican. Uh, you're a conservative, yeah. or you're. More, it would be fairer to say that you're a libertarian conservative uh, yes. more than you are yeah. a Republican. Um, yeah. More of a, you're more a man of ideas and ideals than you are a man of party affiliation, right? Um, yes, but you. do you think that there is any kind of future in these kinds of appeals? Like, in other words, do you think the average do you think mo there are any Republican voters who listen to Governor Whitman and think to themselves, yeah, I would vote for a centrist, a center left Democrat over a Trump Republican? Or do they do they just go and pull all the R levers or fill in all the little R ovals? For all of my gnashing of teeth and rending of cloth, I mean, Trump won this debate. It's, it's his party, literally his party. Um, if he tells... Uh, a, a Republican in Alabama or Michigan or Colorado to vote for, you know, Ted Rawl, the third, the 10th, whatever, who for coroner, they're going to pull its lever for Ted Rawl, the 10th for, for coroner. It's just how it's going to happen. Um, so I, I think we're beyond help, frankly. I think we're, we've, we've, we've crossed that Rubicon and this is where we are. Now, the only way it's going to be solved is when uh, Donald Trump drops dead. You know, he drops dead on top of some porn star. You know, that's on that. You know, that's how it's <laughs> going to go down. That's what he wants. And the militarized court. Yeah, well, who amongst us? <laughs> <laughs> who amongst <laughs> us doesn't really? Um, but wait, so but so I mean, look, even after Donald Trump sheds his mortal coil, uh, you know, isn't there still still going to be a tendency on the part of voters of both major parties to vote straight party line? I mean, isn't that sort of just the way it usually, I mean, you know, we used to split, Americans used to split their tickets, you know, like they used to like divided government. They used to, and I don't yeah. think that's quite yeah. true, or at least they were open to it, right? I think it, the reality is that people liked their local congressman because they knew him or her. And then it was usually a him. Um, but they, and, and like that, and so they were willing to vote for say a Democrat for Congress and a Republican for, for president and vice versa. But that doesn't really seem to happen anymore, right? I mean, the, these elections have all been completely nationalized. People just go down and go do, 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 all R's, yeah. all D's, whatever. I yeah. mean, I mean, I'm that way, well, especially with races that you know, it judges. I don't know who they are, you know. Well, and you also make an interesting point, and you're right. The Republicans go out and vote. Republicans tend to skew older. They're going, to, you know, what else have they got to do? Quite frankly, um, Democrats. I mean, look at the 2016 election. Great example, Ted. Five million fewer Democrats voted in 2016 than voted in 2012. In 2012, you had an incumbent president who was comfortably running against Mitt Romney uh, with Barack Obama. So, uh, you know, uh, Democrats will vote with their with their butts. They won't get up off the couch and go and vote. Uh, Republicans, if they're not, unless they're excited. Well, and that's what happened in 2020. You know, they got motivated to go out and vote, but they hated Donald. Well, no, actually, they didn't have to. Now, remember, that's not true, Scott. In 2020, they didn't have to get up and vote. They had mail in ballots because of covid. That's right. why turnout was massive because voting was the, it was it was a much more frictionless operation. It was but much you easier. Still had, it was still a much closer election percentage wise than you would have expected, given the and turnout on both sides was higher than previously. Oh, yeah, the Republican turnout was massive. 75 million, 74 million votes. More for, people uh, voted for Donald Trump in his losing race uh, against Joe Biden than voted for him in his winning race against Hillary Clinton. So is there room for moderation? I would 
I have a two point answer. To in other that. words, well, this, it, in other words, is is I'm, what I'm really after here is is this just like a waste of time, stupid yeah. story? And like, why is the media even paying attention? It's just ridiculous. It's kind of like, you know, it's let's let's make a plea to all be nice to each other or yeah. you know whatever. I think that's absolutely it. I really do. I think you're right. Um, I would hope that you're wrong, but I know that you're right. I mean, I wish I were wrong. Yeah, no, I mean, I just, I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure that I actually hope that. I just think that it's, it just seems like a total like waste of, of bandwidth, you know, that we could be using to talk about climate change or something important instead of talking about stupid Governor Whitman and her dumb idea thought up over cocktails at the country club. You know, I mean, it's just dumb. I mean, it's like, I mean, Look, again, as a Republican, what would you, do you think there is a way out of, you know, where the, where the Republican Party is now with no nothingism, uh, nativism? <laughs> I uh, love that. Thank you, you know, Ted. And, uh, you know, I mean, you know, well, I mean, you know what I mean? Like the, the opposition yeah. to, and I, I don't include you in this, but I mean, the anti-science uh, you well, know, no, I, I was thanking you for making a Millard Fillmore reference to the know nothing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Thank By you. the way, remind me to show off my uh, Millard Fillmore know nothing political token in my you collection. Didn't. Oh, it's Are beautiful. It's oh. mint condition. It's gorgeous. Ted and I, Ted and I love political items and he collects them much more aggressively than I do. And I am so jealous. So yeah, jealous. No, it's a gorgeous like, And he's, of course, Millard Fillmore wasn't gorgeous, but he was, he was no, gorgeous. He was he no Lewis Cass. <laughs> <laughs> for those of you who don't know what we're talking about, look up Lewis Cass. He ran C-A-S-S. for president. 1848. Yes. Do yourselves a big fat favor and think of what that would have looked like on a coin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think he's, I think he is without a doubt, the ugliest person to ever run for the nation's highest office. Yes. He looks like he's literally, his face is literally melting. He is a, he was apparently a story general. I, I, I don't See, know which war he was. It would in. have to be 1812. Yeah, yeah maybe. Or maybe uh, or maybe it was um, one of the Mexican-American War. Or Good. Well, that was 1848. So it would have been before. So, if you yeah, had 44. it had to be before. Or one of the Indian Wars or something. I don't but know. But he's also got like the cataract thing going. So his eyes are cloudy. I mean, it's just, yeah. it's really. He's, yeah, the dude's like a total monster. It's like he was dead already. <laughs> Lewis Cass, folks. Lewis yeah. Cass. But wait, so, so wait. So also, you know, another Let's aspect of this is like, and again, we, we're, you know, we're, we got to wrap up this, this, uh, this segment, but like, you know, there's something that, that grates about these top down kind of quote unquote movements. Yeah. Like on the left, we have like uh, something called the movement for a people's party, which is a, you know, a progressive orientated quote unquote movement, but it's not a movement. It's not grassroots. It's all a bunch of like Hollywood and lefty progressive celebrities who are, you know, basically want to uh, run a candidate for office in 2024 and, uh, you know, presumably as a third party, but it's top down. And it just seems to me like Uh if you're going to, you know, if you're going to change a political party or a, or a people, you got to, it has to be a grassroots organizing effort. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, and so, yeah, you, I mean, you, yeah, when the Hollywood types, here's the thing is the reason that the Demo- core Democratic voter left the Democratic Party and gone to Donald Trump is because they gave those people the opportunity to represent them and they really screwed it up. And they did, and they showed 
without any <laughs> compunction that they really don't give two craps about the working class. And so working class in, in Rust Belt, Ohio, Pennsylvania, you know, Michigan, Indiana, they know. They know that the Democratic Party does not care about them. So that's where a grassroots progressive movement is going to come from. It's going to come from the union, the, the, the all of a sudden resurrection of union movements in this country. It's going to come from. And I say, that's, I, I think that's never going to happen. I think unions are dead and gone. I don't think so. I think because we talked about in an earlier segment about the, uh, the mass resignations that are going across four and a half million in one month. Uh, those people are. Yeah, but pissed. that's not. That, yeah. I mean, yeah, that's but that's like, you know, people quit smoking uh, in, in by the million in droves, but it doesn't mean it was part of an organized political movement. I mean, you know, the, a, a union is an organization. It's like unions as an organization are dead. I mean, well, people, I just, people quitting their job is not the same thing as people coordinating and going on strike together. It's not the same. I, I know, but this is where it starts. It starts with them looking at how they're being abused by employees, employers rather. And they, they get together. The only power they have, this is where, this is such a weird conversation <laughs> where the conservative is saying, I like unions because it's, as long as they're voluntary, uh, I joined a union years ago, which in a right to work state, as long as the unions are, and, and the only power that the workers have is to, co- is to join together collectively and stand up against the, uh, the power. Well, let me just say, um, uh, I think I'm even in favor of, of unions that are not voluntary as long as they're not corrupt because a uh, which i know is kind of a stretch because they that usually goes together but they really should be i mean i think it's it's kind of unfair for people to get benefit from the you know the uh, of, of of higher wages and better benefits negotiated by a union and then they don't want to pay their union dues i mean that's just kind of rancid welcome back to dmz america i'm scott stans coming to you from the right join right Yes, of course. So listen, thank you for all for listening to this week's edition. We're doing something a little different. I hope you find it as entertaining and as fun as we found it. So Ted, where can we see your work? Best place to go is uh, online, rawl.com, R-A-L-L.com. Also, whowhatwhy.org on Saturdays and sputniknews.com on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And Scott, where can people find your stuff? Go to gocomics.com slash Scott Stantis, one word, or gocomics.com slash Prickly City, which is my comic strip. But also we encourage you to go to a place that is trying to support editorial cartooning, counterpoint.com. It has two of the best cartoonists I know of, Scott Stantis and Ted Rawl, and many others. And uh, So look at it, love it, subscribe to it, make it a part of your life, make it a part of yourself. Thank you, Scott. Uh, it was fun as usual. And until next time, uh, remember we're DMZ America and Ted Rawl and Scott Stantis come to you whenever we feel like it, but probably on a more <laughs> regular schedule at some point soon. Okay. At some point. See you in the funny papers. Ah!